they would argue that from a pure communication standpoint, building awareness, building preference, branding, that sort of thing, probably was worth it. But that wasn't their main concern. They actually had a big field sales force. And so one of the rewards that they had for their best salespeople were Super Bowl tickets. And they were, you know, setting up, doing other things. And they could invite uh, their best customers to part of the things that were going on Super Bowl week. University of Alabama's Colorado's College of Business as BAM means business. A podcast that reveals amazing stories most people both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens and I show today Jim Carr. This is the second part of our three-part series with Jim in which we talk about the modern marketing landscape and some of his thoughts and opinions on what is going on today. I hope you enjoy. Something that you always see and I've personally seen this a lot not only myself but also people I surround myself with is that as a residential advisor on campus, I got to see a lot of people when they were freshmen grow up a lot. It was exponential growth that a lot of students experienced because they're away from home. It's a whole new experience. They're learning topics that they didn't get to touch on in high school. And that growth comes with the ability to talk, the ability to carry conversation, which in today's modern day and age struggles. A lot of people do struggle with that idea of continuing a conversation if that's only for five minutes with someone you do not know. There's some tips and tricks you might have for people who are trying to gain confidence in speaking, in selling settings, but also in personal, maybe even less professional settings. I will preface this call by saying I'm not an exceptional conversationalist, <laughs> right? So if we were just hanging out together, you think, yeah, you know, Jim's relatively interesting and things like that. So I'm not, uh, nor am I an extrovert. Uh, but then again, most people aren't either. And so to get to this, and I'll, I'll take it a little bit from the business standpoint and then a little bit on the personal side, knowing that I might not be the best role model in every situation all the time. I'm someone who, who still, uh, even though I coach and teach a, a lot of this, don't always even follow my own advice. But from a, from a selling standpoint, and this is something that was, I was exposed to and, and, and taught and learned as just a foundational piece. And I'll, I'll share this. I'll condense it a bit. Again, anyone who's listening to this, who you sell for yourself or you have sellers in your company or in your organization or you're not for profit is, I think, very um, foundational. It's a different way of looking at the sales conversation because a lot of times we think about what we want to say. What are we going to have in our selling process? What are we going to have in our presentation, our capabilities for our demos and the like? And what I find is that most teams, and, and these are companies that, that really do have good products and good services and good people, and they know their stuff, and they approach their conversations backwards. Here's what I mean. When we think about what we sell, let's think about how buyers buy and the decisions that they make, the judgments that they make. And what I find is that buyers, particularly in business to business, so then you have multiple people involved at various times along the way. So you might, if you sell a product that's a tech product, you're going to have to talk to somebody from IT and somebody from finance and maybe somebody from HR and maybe somebody from marketing. And, and those, those people at your, at your prospect company did not wake up that morning hoping to talk to you. Chances are, right? So they have their own things they're dealing with and their own challenges and their own um, priorities. I 
find that the buyers tend to ask themselves a sequence of questions, three of them, in a particular order. And whether they're consciously aware of this or not, this is they, they behave as if they're, they're conscious of it. So the first question um, that your buyer is, is asking themselves is, why should we change what we're doing now? Or at least consider changing what we're doing now. Because call as much as everybody talks about, well, you got to be willing to change and you got to be open to new ideas. Few of us like to change very often. Change is hard. Change is uncertain. It's costly. I could lose money. I could lose reputation, all that stuff. At least sometimes, as they say, it's the devil you know versus the one you don't. So whatever they're doing now, using now, there has to be a compelling case to at least consider change. That's the first question. Why should I change what I'm doing now? Second question is why now? What's the urgency about it? Some things can seem like a good idea, but hey, you know, Cole, we only... We have 20 good ideas around here, but as a company, we can only handle three or four priorities at a time. So why is why is the thing you're talking about, why should it go to the top of the pile and get a budget and get all a project or whatever that case might be? Then the third and final question they ask themselves, if, uh, if you're presenting them with an idea, why you? Why you as opposed to a, com- a competitor? Why you as opposed to doing it myself? So it's in it's that order. Why change? Why now? Why you? What I tend to find, though, is that most selling teams do this in reverse. So their first thing is they're thinking, let me tell you about me. What makes me distinctive? Here's why we are the most popular. We've been around the longest. We have the fastest processing time. We have the most cost efficient. It's they're, they're doing the why us thing first. And if that is, if it isn't obvious about what you do well that connects to a problem that I'm feeling today as a buyer, then I don't really care. Fine, you go do what you do and with somebody else, but I've got my own things to worry about. So that they're, the, the sellers are unfortunately trying to start with, here, why us? Let me talk about that. And again, our brains like that. We're talking about ourselves, right? We don't know what else to talk about. Then they try to promote a sense of urgency. We're trying to make the why us, I'm sorry, the why now feel immediate. Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll give you a price cut. Maybe we'll bundle it differently. Maybe we'll, you know, if we're going out of business, I don't know. Something along those way to try to get people to move now, even though they really haven't connected to a problem. Mm. They get frustrated. I've tried to tell them why we're distinctive, why we're great. We're trying to make it a priority to get them to move now. They don't seem willing to move. I have to go educate the market and everybody gets frustrated because they didn't start with the why change piece. That um, that's the business thing. So oftentimes what I'm, what I'm teaching and helping clients do and talk about in our sales management program is how do you align how you sell to how buyers buy? And let's make sure that we are crafting conversations and getting everyone confident in those if they happen at each stage, because it's a little bit different conversation. It, the, the, the change conversation is a little bit different than the urgency conversation, which is a little bit different than the differentiation conversation. But that's how we need to orient ourselves. Now, you ask about just personal messaging, and I don't know that I'm any better at that than anyone else. Talk to people in my family, they would probably agree. However, um, I do know that the, to at least at some level, if your success in leading selling conversations professionally is about you helping understand the problem and the perspective of the other person before you start talking about yourself, 
then there probably is some carryover. There probably is some lesson there in more personal uh, conversations. And so uh, I'm not all about, you know, slick tactics or tricks or anything like that. But I think people can spot a phony mm-hmm. and they can know whether you are clued into them at the moment. If you are showing signs of true empathy with them, not sympathy, but empathy, you know, understanding what they're hoping for, what they're scared of, whether they had a good day or a bad day. And I think by by starting or trying to start your conversations that way with some acknowledgement where they are listening, maybe reflecting back what you're hearing and making sure that you understand before you start going in and uh, trying to offer a solution or tell a story or advice or whatever that might be. Maybe that's the connecting thread in a little bit that way. Talking about your own personal journey yourself, obviously you have a lot of experience across a multitude of different industries and advising different teams selling different products itself. What has been the hardest product or team you've worked with in order to get them sort of focused on a common goal to sell a product in your time working clinically? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, there, there's some, um, and I'll, I'll say the, the industries where I've worked with, with companies directly, and I might leave some out, but they would include things like cybersecurity, IT, um, talent management software, medical devices, professional services, um, and the like. I'd say the one that was... Um, it was a big challenge, not that the, the team or the leadership was resistant. In fact, they, they, they soaked it in, but we had a, we had a two-step problem. So here was, the, uh, here was the situation. It was a company that worked in the cybersecurity space, and they had a very different approach to trying to minimize hacks and incursions in the workplace. And theirs was an actual internet appliance, and it worked in ways that I... I kind of understood, <laughs> as they say, just enough to be dangerous, but I just enough so that I could speak in a layperson's terms. But they, they, and they were brilliant in developing the product, believed in it. They had um, management that was really committed to it. They had a very small sales team and they had aspirations of being able to sell across the U.S. to big enterprises and, and potentially globally as well. So we had to not, we had to translate the technical knowledge that they had along just the same path that I, that I talked about a moment ago. Why is it that um, the approach that most companies tend to use for cybersecurity might not work? That's the why change. What's the urgency about it? What's the immediate threat or the risk that they need to, to try to, to mitigate? And then why, why this company? So it, it took a while to boil down something that is very technical because this is a sale that while it might start with uh, an IT manager or leader or maybe a chief data officer, someone who works in that sphere, ultimately security issues like that are a CEO level, maybe even a board level decision because you get companies and they get hacked and they're millions of pieces of customer data that make it out there. That's a PR hit and that's a business hit. There are a lot of, a lot of bad things that can go on. So there's a very, you've got to be able to translate that value into some very succinct and distinct pieces. 
So that was the first part. All right. But that we deal with all the time. But he was the he was the part that made it even more challenging because they did not have a big sales force of their own. They had a, a contract with an outside sales force. So it was a, a company that sold all sorts of office products and services and did not offer any sort of cybersecurity solution. But they're out making calls and doing selling all sorts of things. So this piece that was brand new difficult to explain, highly technical, and somehow they needed to get the attention of a few thousand salespeople nationwide of, of them. And they're trying to do the math like, uh, how much time would I have to start to learn this thing? What would I make from it? How does it fit with the other things that I sell? Um, and so something like that, this actually a two-stage messaging challenge, uh, it, went, it went well, but that takes a lot of time because you've got to understand uh, not only from the buyers, uh, ultimately who would buy this thing and their perspectives, but also the sellers who were not from the company and were selling you know, 99% of what they would sell would not be your product. <laughs> so um, that's the one that first comes to mind. But every every engagement, every business has its own messaging challenges. So one of the things that interested me most about your personal journey is Yes, the fact of teaching in Alabama at two separate times, but more importantly, in two different areas, very distinct areas. Well, they actually cross over. Now you think about it, you got mass communications and you got marketing. They're sort of one the same, especially in nowadays. The Super Bowl just happened. I'm not yes. sure. Did you watch it yourself? I did. Okay. Yes. So there's a lot of hype around Super Bowl commercials because there's so much money in one 30-second time slot. I think the number was... Like $7 million. $7 million for the time, mm -hmm. which does not get the production costs and the talent costs and that sort of thing. Exactly. So sitting back as a salesperson expert in the subject area, is it worth it? Great question, because worth it means different things to different companies, right? Um, I had it explained to me, and this was a, um, a few years ago, and, and speaking with someone who worked for a company who... Um, had a Super Bowl ad campaign as part of what they, what they were doing. And yeah, they spent a lot of money. They, um, they would argue that from a pure communication standpoint, building awareness, building preference, branding, that sort of thing, probably was worth it. But that wasn't their main concern. They actually had a big field sales force. And so one of the rewards that they had for their best salespeople were Super Bowl tickets. Ooh. And they were, you know, setting up, doing other things. And they could invite uh, their best customers to part of the things that were going on Super Bowl week. Mm. So they would say they're, they're more quantitative parts of return on investment. And they would say some of their just pure, their relationship as well, which may be harder to quantify, but they say, but you don't understand. If, I mean, if I can motivate a group of salespeople and if I can have some of my best customers and if I can convince them to buy more of my stuff this past quarter so that they would be eligible to come and spend a few days at the Super Bowl, that means a lot. So uh, it can be different for different companies. There were, there's some, uh, and I, I may, my memory may fail here in the moment, but I believe the, the brand was Farmer's Dog. Um, that was for the first time, they were a new, new brand, uh, pet food. And they did a, their, um, 
their, their ad, the creative execution on it was really good from the dog's perspective and the dog's lifespan with the owner's mm. life experiences yes, and things yes. like that too. And it was one of the more highly rated uh, from the audiences that they, they liked the ad. Now, does that pay off? I, I don't know, but when you get a, um, when you get a, a newer brand like that, that's gaining distribution and gaining consumer awareness over time, that can be the thing that, that gets them to the big time. And these days, of course, it's not just it airing during the Super Bowl itself. It's they uh, have previewed this and run teasers on social media before that uh, particular ad was getting touted as one of the ones that was the most popular and highest rated during the Super Bowl. So it's appearing in news reports and publicity. And then, of course, social media and all that that happens afterwards. So the ability to maybe build distribution where it didn't exist before until you hit the big time in the Super Bowl. So at least if I'm selling the time on TV, I'm going to be talking about instances like that of like, it has, it has all sorts of potential good effects. Of course, if your product or service isn't very good, as they always say, nothing, nothing will kill a bad product faster than good advertising. That's Jim Carr, clinical professor of marketing here at the university of Alabama. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And join us next week for the final part of our three-part series with Jim. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College of Business and what it has to offer. And as always, roll tide.